Father, we, uh, we do love you. We thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ. And we're honored to be a part of the greater body of Christ, to recognize that all over uh, the world, there are people that gather together in the name of your son to worship and to praise him. Uh, Father, that we get to be a part of that is a joy to us, uh, that we can pray for those churches is, is powerful for us to recognize that connection there. Lord, so we do pray for uh, churches all over the world that are gathering, that they would uh, do all that they know how to honor and to praise you, and that they would hold closely to your word, and that your word would build them up. Father, I pray for uh, North Cheyenne Baptist Church today, and Pastor Daniel Brubeck, and the ministry that he has there. Uh, Lord, you know I love that church, and you know of my history of uh, coming to Christ there, and being baptized there, and being married there. Uh, and then later meeting uh, Pastor Daniel and uh, finding out we went to the same college. And then uh, now his son and my son being good friends. Uh, just, a, just a cool connection to that church. Uh, but Lord, I would pray uh, that as Daniel uh, faithfully preaches your word, uh, that it will do what it's promised to do, that it will build up and edify that church. Uh, Father, as you strengthen the individual members of that church, uh, that you would uh, equip them to now go out and do your ministry, that they would care for and love one another, they would care for and love their neighbors, that they would uh, preach the gospel wherever they go. Uh, from that church, Lord, your kingdom would grow and the number of those glorifying you would be increased. Uh, Lord, we pray also for the missionaries that we support. I pray this morning for Anna Davis, and I would ask, Lord, that you would be uh, giving her great wisdom. Uh, she's in uh, such a weird spot, having been in Jordan for what was supposed to be just a very short time. Uh, but now being kind of trapped there by COVID for months at this point and uh, still having opportunity to minister to people as she does, uh, to teach people how to study the Bible, to train up missionaries, but also to minister uh, to some of the locals there around where she's at. Lord, I pray that the work she's doing would be planting seeds in the hearts of people, that we would uh, see that she would be just one piece of what would be uh, a coming revival within the Islamic countries. Uh, Lord, I would pray uh, specifically for her as... Uh, things start to loosen up a little bit with COVID, that you would start to show her what her future looks like, uh, how it is that she's supposed to go uh, forward after this time, uh, Lord, that uh, she would still be able to minister uh, in your kingdom. I know she's excited about some things that are on the horizon. I pray that those things would uh, become clearer for her as she prays. Lord, we also pray for the ministries in our church. I, I think of our young marrieds ministry and the chance that we have to uh, gather different mentor couples together to uh, invest their life in these young married couples. I would pray, Lord, uh, for those that are the young marrieds, uh, that they would learn uh, not just by the example of the mentors, but the other young married couples that they meet, uh, just what it means to, to live a godly marriage in this world, that uh, they would be able to have the encouragement and the accountability and the instructions that they need uh, to walk forward as a godly young people. Uh, Lord, I would pray uh, that you would allow them to also have great encouragement and fellowship with one another, that they would uh, find some of their best friends in these groups. They would find that their similar circumstances in life would lead to uh, just this ability to really enjoy being together with one another and to grow those friendships and uh, to have those people there for them in good times and bad. Lord, we pray for the word this morning as we prepare to be in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of important stuff in the chapter, a lot of uh, great things in there for us to learn, Lord, but ultimately we want to surrender ourselves uh, to your will and your spirit, uh, even beyond the things that I preach and teach. I know, Lord, that your spirit can be speaking to each one of our hearts individually, that we would leave here today knowing that we heard from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as you guys are turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, I uh, just want to give you a, just a real quick heads up on something. Um, after service today, normally I stick around and talk to people and pray and stuff, but I'm going to be bolting out the door today. Uh, my son is moving into his dorm in Laramie right now, and I didn't want to miss being a part of that, so I'm abandoning you all as soon as I say amen. And uh, you guys can just greet one another and pray for one another, and you don't even need me for any of that anyway. And uh, so I'm going to hit the road, and then be back for 6 o'clock service tonight. So that'll make for a fun uh, Sunday for me, and hopefully uh, good memories with that as well. So we are in Matthew chapter 4. We're working our way not just through the gospel of Matthew, which we are doing. Uh, this is the gospel that talks a lot about the fulfillments of Jesus Christ, how he is the fulfillment of a lot of those Old Testament prophecies. Uh, but beyond that, we're in the process of working our way through the New Testament in five years. Uh, we're doing that by hitting one chapter every week. 
uh, which sometimes is a tall order. Uh, there's quite a few things in this week's chapter, uh, but if you're overwhelmed by the things in the 25 chat verses this week, just wait until you see the 48 verses next week. So let's see if we can get this done, right? And on top of it all, I've been trying to make my sermons shorter with the whole COVID thing to make people more comfortable want to gather together. So uh, anyway, I should probably start if that's going to be the case. Uh, as we're looking now in chapter 4, uh, we're going to see a couple of different things in here, uh, but I'm kind of um, comparing it to a campaign, uh, that Jesus now has arrived on the scene. He's been announced as that future coming king of the kingdom of heaven by John the Baptist. He's been introduced in the book here. And now as we move forward in chapter 4, it's going to be very similar to a campaign. First and foremost, he's going to have a debate with the incumbent leader of the earth. And so you're going to see that in the temptation of Jesus there in those first 11 verses. Uh, and then you're going to see him down in chapter seven, or verse 17 uh, pick his campaign slogan that you're to repent for the kingdom of heaven uh, is at hand. And then you're going to see him gather together his team. He's going to start to gather up his disciples. And then he's going to take his Trump speech onto the speaking tour, and he's going to move around the countryside and proclaim this message of this kingdom. So this is kind of what you're seeing here. Uh, in a sense, Jesus is campaigning to be not just king of heaven, but he's campaigning to be the king of your life. And so he's going to begin to present some of what that's going to look like. And like I said, it starts out here with this temptation uh, that we're going to see there in the wilderness. Um, but as we read in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what I would like to point out about that before we even really get into this passage uh, is who's in charge here? Let's not get confused and think to ourselves that Jesus just happened to be hanging out in the desert and he just happened to have just finished a 40-day fast and Satan, just being as smart as he is, just thought, this is my moment. This is when I'm going to go get him. No, this was led, it says, by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who led him into the wilderness, but it actually tells us the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness for the purpose, it says, to be tempted by the devil. This was all according to God's plan. Now, this isn't a situation where God the Holy Spirit was saying to himself, let's just see if Jesus measures up. That's not the case at all. Uh, when it says that he's being tempted here, that's certainly the work that Satan's attempting to do, but it's not for the purposes of seeing if Jesus is good enough. We already know that he is because he is not just fully man, he's also fully God. So this is Jesus who is God. All of this fitting within his plan serves a purpose. I think within the writings of the Gospel of Matthew, it's going to serve the purpose of hammering home the point that he is the Son of God. And you'll actually see Satan is going to use that line a couple of times. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. So we spent the first three chapters seeing that he is the Son of God, and now we're going to see him defend himself in that, in this uh, first section here. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, I think it's going to be uh, intended to be an encouragement for us. It's going to be a reminder that although we might find ourselves at times in difficult battles of temptation, in difficult battles with Satan, that ultimately our Savior Jesus Christ has already overcome him. It's a reminder for us of the power of God in Jesus Christ. So let's not get ourselves confused in this. And it's not that there aren't some practical tips here. I don't want you to think that there's nothing that we can practically take away from this except for that God is in charge and Jesus can beat Satan. There are some practical tips. We want to certainly pick those things up. You're going to be able to see from Satan's perspective how it is that he will attack God's people. And you'll get to see from God's perspective how we should respond to those temptations. But ultimately, this is here for us to get a glimpse of the first step, really, of Jesus overcoming uh, the prince of the earth at this time, the one who feels as if he's the one in charge. But ultimately, God behind the scenes is in charge of all of this. So in verse 2, when the temptation starts, it says, After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, which seems like I would have been hungry long before that. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones 
become bread. So this first temptation, Satan first looks at the circumstances that Jesus is in and says, how can I use his current circumstances against him? And this is a trick that Satan will use in your life. He'll find the stuff that's going on in your life and he'll attempt to use it against you to draw you away from the things of God. So Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. Let's tempt him with some bread. And so he asks this question, if you are the Son of God, which is what he's really challenging here, but if you are the Son of God, then show me your power, make these stones, command them to turn into bread. Now what is at issue here is not the power of Jesus to do this. What is at issue here is the power of Satan to command Jesus. See, let's not get confused by this. Uh, it's the situation rises uh, where you have this kind of uh, this thought or this conversation with yourself. Man, maybe Jesus didn't turn the stones into bread because he couldn't. No, it's not that he couldn't. It's that Satan doesn't have the ability to tell Jesus what to do. So if Satan says, turn this into bread, Jesus' response, as by the way should be our response anytime Satan tells us to do something, is No. You can't tell me what to do. Satan has no authority over your life. He has no ability to command you to do anything. And so we see is the case here. But Jesus is going to respond to this. He's going to use this scripture. And you'll see this come up several times in this passage. In verse 4, he answered and said to him, it is written. And so this is how Jesus is going to respond to Satan, which gives us a good clue on how we should respond. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I love the word alone there because I do need some bread. I need to eat. But we don't live on bread alone. We live on every word that comes out of the, man of God, out of the mouth of God. We need the word of God. And this is an important application point for us. Uh, that as we uh, come into these temptations, we recognize that Jesus had prepared himself in advance through fasting. He was already in the habit of drawing close or hungering after God. That's already where he was. And then he already knows the word. Of course, it's his word. Certainly he knows it. But for us, the word of God is a powerful tool against the temptations of Satan. But the only way we can use that tool is if we have it. We need to actually spend time studying and learning the Word of God so that we can have it ready, that the Holy Spirit can bring it to our mind at just the right moment when we have these situations, these temptations, and these circumstances come up in our lives. And so we need to be prepared with that. And that's really the reason we've designed our church the way that we have. You know, the history of Calvary chapels is that we teach verse by verse through the Bible, or as we see it, we're equipping you with the ammunition that you need to live out your life. And we're trying to take that a step further as a church, as we encourage you guys to actually read this passage every day the week leading up to it. So you've spent a week in chapter four, presumably at this point, reading it every day. Maybe you've even memorized a verse out of there. And now you're going to hear a sermon out of chapter 4. And then I'm going to tell you that in the next week, I want you to actually talk to somebody about this. What we're doing is we're giving you the tools and the practice to be able to use the Word of God for its intended purposes. And in this case, one of those purposes is to defend against the attacks of Satan. We see this in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says that all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And I love this last piece. Why? So that the man or woman of God could be adequately equipped for every good work. And adequate is pretty much my life verse. Like this thing comes up in scripture a number of times, the word adequate. And man, I dig that word. I love that word. I spent a lot of my life just hoping to someday be adequate at something. And here God tells me just by being in his word, I'm adequately equipped for every good work he puts in my path. Adequate means good enough. And if I could just be good enough, right? His word prepares us for these things. He adequately equips us for every good work. So Jesus' response 
is to say that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, number one, Satan, you can't tell me what to do. And number two, I need more than just bread to live. I need the very things of God. And so he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 there. So the devil comes at him again in verse 5. He's going to build on his attack. He says this, Then the devil took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So here comes the next attack. Again, it's couched in this idea, if you are the Son of God. But now he says, throw yourself down. So here's the, here's the scenario. Jesus, presumably either in body or at least in a vision, has been brought to the city of Jerusalem, and he's now on the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple. And so imagine this scenario, Jesus standing on the highest point of the temple, standing up there, who knows how many feet up in the air, stories up in the air, and Satan comes to him and says, jump. You You see what Satan's doing here. He's trying to tempt Jesus to jump, to take his own life. It's a suicidal temptation. And then he even does this next dastardly deed. He starts to quote Scripture. It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91. He takes the Scripture now and begins to twist it. Now, this is an old trick for him. You remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? But Satan, we have to understand, he has access to the Scriptures as well. And he's certainly not above using them to go after God's people. And again, I would say it's important that you not just kind of know the Word. It's important that you know the Word so you understand the context of the Word and how the Word is intended to work and what it's intended to do. And nowhere in the things that are being said in Psalm 91 is there this understanding that you can just jump off of buildings. That's not the intent of the written Word there. And once again, Satan is trying to command Jesus what to do. And Jesus doesn't have to listen. Jesus chooses not to listen. He's going to respond as well in verse 7. Jesus said, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're going to see him quote Deuteronomy in each of these responses, uh, first in chapter 8 and then here in chapter 6, and then again the next one will be in chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, But it's kind of interesting that he uses Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is known as the last sermons of Moses. And so this is just kind of the recording of his last sermons to the people of Israel. And for the people of Israel, Moses was the mediator between God and man. In fact, at one point in the book of Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, or maybe it's in Exodus, but anyway, God says to Moses, when the people hear you and see you, it will be to them as if God is speaking. And now here comes Jesus who is the one that Moses was pointing forward to, he's going to refer back to that. So for the Jews, when they hear this, uh, this is a powerful use of the book of Deuteronomy. But I'm going to take it a step further than that. Uh, This quotation here that Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, I just want to say this for us as believers. Sometimes it's Satan that's trying to to do this, but sometimes we we deceive ourselves in these things. And we find ourselves putting God to the test. And we'll say things like this. Well, God, if you really were real, you would heal my sick cat. Oh, maybe it's something more important than your sick cat. God, if if you really loved us, you would let me get the job that I want. Oh, oh God, if, if if you really existed, you would take away my cancer. Oh, God. Well, what are you saying? Essentially, what you're saying is, God, 
if you're real, you should do things exactly the way I do them. Which really says, I only want to worship a God who's just like me. You see, we put God to the test sometimes. We put Him to the test. Now, it's not that we can't ask God to heal our sick cat or to give us the job we want or to take away our cancer. It's not that we can't ask God to do those things. But we ask for His will, not ours. We're asking Him to intercede in our lives. We're asking Him, literally in that moment, to be God of our life. And if He's God of our life, He gets to decide when we're healed, and when we get the job we want. And this is a real deal thing that happens in our world. And if we're not prepared to deal with these things, we're going to really struggle in our faith. And we're going to find ourselves coming to a point where God doesn't match the false image of Him that we have, and so we end up rejecting Him because we've just played this game of temptation too long, of testing the things of God. It's a dangerous place to be. Well, Satan is again going to move the scene. He's going to take, it says in verse 8, Jesus to a very high mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And again, I don't know if they're physically going to a high mountain or if he's just giving him some sort of vision. Uh, But either way, it's kind of this powerful moment that, that should help us to at least recognize that Satan is more powerful than we are. Like in this moment, whether he's doing this physically or through a vision that he's giving Jesus, Satan has some sort of power here that we need to recognize in this, something that we need to be concerned about. But he takes him up on a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Well, Jesus has been proclaiming and John the Baptist has been proclaiming that Jesus is the coming king of heaven. Satan is the incumbent. He sees himself as the ruler of this world. That's what the scripture says. Jesus is coming in as this new king, and Satan says, I'll just hand it over to you. You don't have to fight, bro. I'll just hand it over to you. I only ask one thing, just right here on this mountain where nobody else can see us. Just fall down and worship me. Again, Jesus does not have to do the things that Satan asks him to do, and neither do we. And Jesus again responds, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And so Jesus' response again is to quote Scripture. And this is ultimately a kind of a key Scripture, right? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. It kind of defines the terms of what our faith in Jesus Christ comes down to. It's this concept that we worship and serve God only. That's really a good definition of what our Christian life is. That we worship and serve God only. That He's the one we worship and He's the one we serve. Of course, Satan is trying to draw Jesus away from that. Jesus isn't going to fall for this. All of this was allowed by God. It was allowed by the Holy Spirit. It was really set up by the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, I think Satan already knows that he's lost. He already knows that it's over. If he couldn't draw Jesus away from the plan and purposes of God, he already knows. It's not that Satan's going to stop trying, and it's not that Satan has given up taking as many of us away from the power and the kingdom of God as he can, but in this moment, I think he already knows. Now, this, by the way, was not easy for Jesus. I know we kind of like to think of Jesus as kind of coming in in his perfectly white robes and and like bullets are bouncing off his chest as the Pharisees start accusing him and as Satan starts bringing in temptations and all of this stuff happens and he's like, you don't understand, I'm super Messiah. 
No, he has fasted for 40 days, and he's fully man, which means he's hungry. And now he's suffering this mental anguish of these temptations that are coming in, and it's overwhelming and exhausting even to him, to the point it says that when the devil left him, behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Let's not just kind of get ourselves in this habit of saying, well, Jesus was God, all this was easy for him. No, Jesus surrendered. He emptied himself, it says, when he came down and he took on the form of a bondservant. He became like us. And he has to deal with all the same difficulties that we have. Hunger and depression and sickness and temptation and pain and all of those things were real for him just like they're real for us. And now, In this moment, he's going to be ministered to uh, by these angels who come and uh, begin to care for him. And that's kind of one of those things that, you know, we can kind of jokingly throw out there. I know uh, I have at different times, oftentimes for me, that temptation to kind of test God in things is surrounded around the miraculous. Uh, And so I'll say things like, you know, I would probably be a much better pastor if you would just let me hear your voice, God. And it's perfectly logical, isn't it? And you know, I would probably just be a much better pastor if if you would just give me the power to heal. If I just had this like glowing, healing hand, and whoever I touched just... And this is another one of them. You know, Lord, it's been a rough week. If you could just send a couple of your angels down to minister to me, although full well knowing that if one of them guys started rubbing my feet, I'd be out. That'd be the end of that. But again, I, I think these temptations are all too real to us. I think these things are all too common to us that we can fall prey to these same things. And that Satan will use these things for the purpose of drawing us away from God. So Jesus now coming through the debates unscathed, we find in verse 12, he begins to remind us, of how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So verse 12 says this, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. And so now we're going to see his campaign headquarters here. Uh, He's going to begin his campaign. Uh, His ministry is going to start in Capernaum, uh, which may not seem all that important to us. Uh, But you'll actually find out that that is also a fulfillment of Scripture, that the light is going to begin to dawn in the darkness uh, in in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. And so amongst those tribes is going to be the region that the ministry is going to start. Uh, Again, I I know I've hit this point a couple weeks in a row, but you kind of go back and you look at all the fulfillments of the promises of the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling, just mentioned here so far in in the book of Matthew. First of all, his genealogy, his birth, his names. And then we saw in chapter 2 a number of them there, but the ones that I found most interesting uh, were the locations of who he's going to be from. He's going to be as from Bethlehem, but he's also going to come up out of Egypt and he's going to be known as a Nazarene. And now we can see his light is going to dawn from Zebulun and Naphtali. And so it's kind of like, uh, if you can imagine somebody saying, somebody has to be from four different places to fulfill this prophecy. And I'm sure over the years that the Jewish scribes and Pharisees and all the religious leaders started to argue about this. I said he's from Bethlehem. No, Isaiah said he was going to be a Nazarene. So he's got to be from Nazareth. No, no, you guys just don't understand. It said he would come from Egypt. Yes, but the light dawns in Zebulun and Naphtali. You can just kind of see how Christian, or, I'm sorry, Jews would have been arguing over these kind of minor but important details, right? And yet, now in the life of Jesus, we're seeing how he fulfills each one of these things that seem to be somewhat conflicting, but it's the fulfillment 
of these prophecies uh, that Matthew is trying to get at. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, just showing one more way uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And then in verse 17, Jesus begins with his slogan, uh, what will be the slogan for his campaign as king. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, And this was all things we have heard before. This is the exact same thing Uh, that John the Baptist was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 2. He was preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus now continuing on with that message, and he's going to use that kind of all throughout his ministry, this idea of repenting because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talked about it more in detail last week, but to repent is a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of action so that you're no longer pursuing your things, but you're now pursuing the things of God. And the reason for doing that is because the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the place where there is a king, right? The kingdom of heaven is, it's now, it's at hand, it's within reach. It's so close. And so you prepare yourself for that new coming kingdom through repentance. And now he begins to build his team. In verse 18, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. First service, I made a terrible joke there about casting a net into the sea and her screaming, I can't swim. This service, the joke is that I actually told that joke. So casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus now begins to build up his team, his first disciples, uh, those who are going to follow after him and then ultimately learn from him so that when he's gone, they can either be sent out by him to different locations or replace kind of the work that he did here on earth in their midst. And of course, that, that calling of disciples didn't end with these four guys. It moves on to the 12 and then the 70 and then the hundreds and then now here to the point where we are today where there are millions of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ all over the planet, following after uh, the calling of Jesus, that we're continuing in the ministry that he called us to. Uh, so he's gonna, we're going to meet these four guys, uh, Simon, who's later going to be renamed Peter, so he becomes quite famous. Andrew does not get a lot of press in the scripture, but he was uh, Simon's brother, and he's also going to join Jesus right at the beginning. Uh, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, kind of the loud mouths of the New Testament. You're going to see those guys open their mouths and insert foot a couple of different times. Um, so, you know, good, good, good friends of mine, good role models. Uh, but it's interesting as you see what happens here. Uh, when Jesus calls them, I think from Sunday school on, I kind of had this weird view of this. Uh, in my mind, for whatever reason, when I saw this in the past... Uh, it was almost like these guys had never heard of Jesus. They didn't know anything about Jesus. They're just minding their own business, literally fishing. And this guy just walks by and says, follow me and I'll make your fishers of men. And they're like, oh, sure, we'll leave our family and our job to follow you. Strange man that just walked by our boat. Oh, sure, we'll abandon our father and let him mend the nets by himself and follow after you. I guess that's just how I always saw it in the past, but now as I spent a little more time in it, I think generally Jesus has been ministering in this area. They've likely already heard these things. This isn't new information to them. Now they're seeing this popular teacher, Jesus, asking, do you want to learn from me? Do you want to learn the things that I have to teach? And they say, now that's something I would abandon my business for. And that's something I would take a temporary leave from my family to follow you. They've made a decision that could be costly to them financially and relationally to pursue the things of God with their life. They made that decision. That's what they've chosen to do in response here to the call of Jesus. And so they do that. They abandon their businesses. They're no longer fishermen. Their income is currently zero. That's just the reality of the situation, right? And then, again, I can't imagine what uh, Mr. Zebedee was thinking. (laughs) 
as his boys are mending the nets. And then they're like, hey, dad, why don't you finish this off? We're taking off. See ya. Like I imagine that might have been a moment for him unless maybe he had heard the teachings of Jesus as well. And maybe he's encouraging them in this. But ultimately, these guys are now going to spend their life with Jesus. They're going to spend their life with him. Think about that. They're going to go where he goes, eat where he eats, sleep where he sleeps, pray when he prays, minister when he ministers. But again, this is just the Christian life, right? Wherever God sends us, we go. Whatever he asks us to do, we do. We slowly need to get in the habit of being like this. And sometimes it will cost us financially or relationally. Those things start to happen. You start to find that as you follow the things of God, it's, it's never without cost. But you willingly do it because you worship and serve God only. So we get to see how all of this works out for Jesus in verses 23 through 25. We'll finish it up with this last section here. Um, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So what we're recognizing here uh, is his ministry becomes quite popular. Uh, the, The news about him is spreading throughout all of Israel and even around into some of the neighboring countries, this work that he's doing. Now, it's not surprising that he becomes quite popular. One of the things he does is he heals people of their diseases and their illnesses. That would make a guy quite popular, right? Like if you have the ability to heal somebody who's sick, you might want to go see that show. You still see it happen today, by the way, and I don't want to assign whether something's real or not real. I know it's not my intent here, but when you think about these ministries that claim to have certain healing powers, people are flocking to them because they desire that healing. They desire to not be sick. And here Jesus is bringing all these healings, and I would say uh, in a way that nobody ever has done before or that nobody ever will do again, and that is this. It says that he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Not just occasionally, sometimes, maybe even once or twice it happened. It's everything. He's just healing everything. Now, all of this is actually a fulfillment of some of the prophecies of Isaiah, that he was going to give sight to the blind, that he was going to heal the sick, that he was going to raise the dead. These are the things that were going to follow the Messiah. This is more of him being the fulfillment of these things. Uh, It's interesting not just that his healing ministry drew a crowd, but it's also his teaching ministry. Uh, We see in other places in the scripture where it says he spoke as if he had power and authority, and people weren't used to that. Uh, We see that he was teaching here in the synagogues because he was first going to the Jews. And so he would show up at a synagogue. They would see a traveling teacher and they would say, what do you have for us from the Lord? And then he would speak and then people would be amazed. You're going to see a lot of that in chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is known as the Sermon on the Mount, but this kind of encompasses some of the main teachings of Jesus. And we're going to try to hit all of chapter 5 next week. So uh, be with me uh, in prayer and weeping to figure out how to get all that stuff in there in one short sermon. But uh, anyway, um, uh, but as you look at this, uh, I just want to point out something that I think is a difficulty for us as Christians that we need to sincerely think about, we need to sincerely think through and discuss. Uh, And that's this idea that Jesus was healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. They would bring to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, and he was casting out demons and killing... uh, uh, healing epileptics and paralytics. I just said he was healing all of these people. And there's this moment in history where that was absolutely true, that Jesus was healing everybody. But what we've found since then is that because that had a very specific purpose, that wasn't intended to be Jesus's only ministry. And that's difficult 
It's difficult as a pastor to talk about those things because I can look around a room and I can see people who've had real struggles with their health, who've lost loved ones, who have cried out to God to heal them, and yet He didn't. It's a real painful thing, but we have to deal with it honestly. Uh, This last week I was on Facebook and a guy uh, posted, and I think it was some sort of joke, but of course uh, I thought it would be even funnier if I took it serious, uh, because this guy's not a believer at all, but he posted on his page, press three for prayer. And I'm sure there was some sort of joke there that I didn't get and some other people didn't get, because people started just typing the number three after that. And so for all the people that typed the number three, I responded to them and said, how can I pray for you today? Now, I'm sure that is not the purpose of this guy because he's a total atheist, anarchist. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. Again, I think it was all just a big joke to him. But then people would give me their prayer requests, and some of those ended up on the prayer tree this week. There you go. That's how some of those got there. But here's the deal. As soon as those started coming in, then you started getting the other responses, the people that were mocking prayer were mocking the things of God. And in fact, uh, one of the guys that I actually uh, haven't seen in forever, but I knew him from high school, he posts up there, yeah, I tried that once and grandma still died. And you kind of look at that and you, and you recognize it might be mockery maybe, but I bet there's some real hurt behind that too. I bet it's a legitimate thing in his heart and in his mind. I bet he said to himself at some point, well, if God can't or won't heal my loved one, then why should I believe in and or follow him? We have to deal with this as Christians. And we can deal with it theologically, and then I have a logical way that I deal with it as well. But we have to be prepared for this. Theologically, I would say it like this. There's two things on the theological side. Theologically, thing number one is the healings that we see here were for a time and for a purpose. It was to announce him as the Messiah to the world so that everybody would know about it. Now those things have been recorded for us. It's not a requirement anymore. It's not that he didn't in those moments have compassion on those people. He really did. It says he looked on the crowds with compassion and he began to heal them. But it was never his intent to heal everybody. It just wasn't his intent. The second piece of that, theologically, uh, it, it goes back to the temptation that Satan brought here, where Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And that is, I think, many people, when they ask God to heal, it's because they want God to respond like they would. And if God's not like them, they won't like God. They are once again creating God in their own image. And they would say things, man, if I was God, I would heal every sick person. If I was God, I would take up residence down at Children's Hospital, for goodness sakes. That's what I would do if I was God. But you're not God. And your plans and your purposes are not the same as God's plans and purposes. See, God's job, His hope and His purpose was not to give us eternal life in this miserable place. It was to give us eternal life in heaven. If God, and this is where my theology meets my ology, my logic, and those two get somehow meshed together or messed up in my brain, But the logic of this, to me, is the thing that has actually sold me. We all lament how difficult things here on planet Earth are. Oh, there's riots and protesters and cops shooting people and wars and rumors of wars and disease and all of this stuff. Lord, please heal me so I can stay here forever. Ultimately, if if God heals everybody every time, we never receive the gift of heaven. That ultimate healing does come, that eternal life does come, but it comes at the proper time in the proper place. See, we have to deal with that because the people we know and love have those questions. We have to be prepared to deal with that. Because I can promise you that each and every person in this room knows somebody 
who is suffering or who has lost somebody. And with all of their heart, they want to see that person healed. They want to see that person restored with all of their heart. And now you're telling them it's not their will be done, it's His will be done. You have to be prepared for those things. So powerful and it's so painful for some of us, but these are realities of who God is. His goals are just different than our goals. And to quote an infamous pastor, although I'm going to say it the right way, not the way he says it. God's not doing this to give us our best life now. He's doing it to give us our best life eternally with Him in heaven. These are hard things we have to deal with. So the news begins to spread about Him because of what He was doing of healing people and teaching so powerfully. And you can see that, uh, that his campaign is beginning to reach not just in that area of Galilee, but over to Decapolis, down to Jerusalem and Judea, so down in southern Israel, even beyond the Jordan River. It talked earlier about going all throughout Syria. And so you see that his ministry is beginning to spread. And he's pretty popular right now, but don't get used to it. Because <laughs> the religious leaders are going to come in and cause doubts and cause difficulties and arguments and Satan's going to continue to cause problems, and then Jesus is going to cause his own problems. I tell you what, that guy says some things sometimes that are really hard to swallow. And it's going to say some of the people will just fall away after he says these things. Even his own disciples will say things like, you can't say that. (laughs) Well, if this is the way it is, it's impossible to anybody to get saved. So he's going to say some hard things as well, but his crowd's going to dwindle at some point Uh, to the point where the biggest crowd will be the one cheering, crucify him, crucify him. So we look at all of these things and we consider this idea that I'm trying to encourage you guys to share conversations because look what's happening here is the news about him is spreading. Part of our job is to spread the news of Jesus Christ. And so I would say to you, this is the way I would handle a section of Scripture like this. I would look at each one of these things and say to myself, how can I spark a conversation with somebody about this? So I would look at the temptations of Satan, and I would look at it uh, at this first place, and I would ask people a question uh, where Satan tempts with the bread. I would ask this question. Okay, we know that people need food to live. What else do we need to live? And people would say, well, we need water, we need oxygen, you know, uh, money doesn't hurt, Netflix is pretty important. We just kind of start listing off all of these things, right? You started a conversation with somebody, but it's a spiritual conversation because now you can say, I'll be honest with you. For me to live, I need to hear from my Creator. I need to know what my purpose is here on this earth. I need to know why I'm here. And now you can have a conversation. You've turned that conversation into something spiritual. Or, Or this next section here where Satan essentially tempts Jesus to jump. And now you have a conversation with somebody. Have you ever heard him whisper in your ear, jump? Have you ever heard him whisper in your ear, take those pills? Have you ever heard him listen? Or have you ever heard him whisper these things in your ear? And you can respond to them. He's not in charge of you. Satan doesn't get to tell you what to do. Because we worship and we serve God only. Now you've got a spiritual conversation. Now you can really communicate with somebody. Begin to spread the word, the good news concerning the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And you can take each one of these sections and kind of work through it in those ways. You're going to run across people who are sick. And you're going to for sure pray for them. And I want to make sure I didn't overstate these things. I do believe that God can and will heal people from time to time. For His purposes and in His ways. I don't want to neglect that. That's important. And I get to pray for people on a regular basis, almost daily because of the prayer tree. I get to pray on a regular basis for people to be healed. 
And there are people I've met that I've prayed for that I honestly, sincerely, God healed them. I just believe it. I just, I've seen it. God completely changed their circumstances. And so I'm going to pray for those people that are sick. But I'm not going to just leave it there. I'm going to ask the next question. But what if he says no? I'm going to take it all the way through so they can have that conversation. And you're going to be able to draw from your own experiences because you weren't healed or you knew someone who wasn't healed. You're going to be able to take that to the most important things to help them see the reality of what this world is, the temporary nature of this world. And they already know that. They already understand it. They just don't like to think about it unless you're talking about climate change. Because the world's going to end by 2000, I mean 2012, I mean 2027, it's over. It's going to happen. And I agree with them. It's going to happen. This world is temporary. It is going to burn up. We know that's true. It's temporary and so is your life. It's temporary and now you can have a real conversation with somebody. See, the Word is equipping you to spread the news of Jesus Christ. Because although this world is temporary... He's gone to prepare a place for you, an eternal home where there is no pain and there is no disease and there is no sin. That's what the gospel's all about. That's the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Some of us are too invested in the kingdom of this world, in the kingdom of the United States. We need to be invested in the kingdom of heaven. Not that we ignore the things that are going on in this world. I still think you should vote, and I think you should be loud about it, too. I think you should tell everybody your opinion if you have a good one. (laughs) I think you should think through things politically, and I think you should pray and hope for the best for our country. Who would want to live in a country that's not doing well? It doesn't make any sense. Of course you pray for those things. Of course you stand for those things. But you recognize that all of those things are temporary, just like every country before us. Nations rise and nations fall. That's just the reality. There's one kingdom that's eternal, and that's the one that we're the true citizens of. God's preparing us, and He's preparing that place for us. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for today and for Your Word and and as much as it's hard sometimes to talk about some of these subjects, uh, at least for me, as I talk about healing and death and all of those things, I see people's faces. I see names of people. Uh, I look around the room and I can remember the things that folks are going through right now. But Lord, it's also oh important that we hear from you on these things. We be built up and encouraged by you on these things. That we not forget who we are and who you are that we are the people and you are the king, that we come to you with our requests, but we trust you with the response. Our Lord, help us to worship as you give and as you take away. Father, we thank you so much that we have a Savior that can identify with us, that Jesus felt pain, he felt sickness, he felt death. He felt the difficulty that comes with seeing somebody that he loves die. He knows what it's like. We're so thankful that we have a a Savior who is like us, who has been with us. We can trust in him as a faithful friend. Father, we worship you for these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to worship in a minute, but I just want to remind you the prayer room is opened up. We've got that all cleaned up and ready to go again. And uh, so if you have prayer needs, we'll have some of the elders there after service. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next time.